is the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we're committed to the success of women entrepreneurs and majority women-owned companies across Canada. As a proud partner of the Thrive Podcast, we're here to help you start, grow, or scale your business. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women today. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Applications are now open for the Canadian Export Challenge, CXC 2020, presented in partnership with UPS, the Trade Commissioner Service, and Export Development Canada, along with MasterCard and Scotiabank, and powered by Google Canada, is the first nationwide fully digital pitch competition for Canadian exporters. This year, the Canadian Export Challenge will be accepting all first round pitches through online video submissions. Don't miss your chance to pitch for up to $25,000 cash and up to $100,000 in support. What are you waiting for? Submit your pitch video now. The free events are open to attend for all Canadian entrepreneurs and anyone interested in learning more about the Canadian export ecosystem. Register at startupcan.ca forward slash CXC. listening to the Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. On the Thrive Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and other support to help you make your vision a reality faster. This podcast is a production of Startup Canada, Canada's entrepreneurship organization, and is presented in partnership with the Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, Executive Director at Startup Canada. Welcome to the show. We are thrilled to have Alana Ben-Ari on our show today. Alana is a multiple award-winning design entrepreneur, TEDx speaker, and Ariana de Rothschild Fellow. She has been working at the intersection of design and social innovation for over a decade. Her company, 21 Toys, has been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, Bloomberg, and her invention, the Empathy Toy, was praised by Time Magazine as a technology that is reshaping the future. Her company has brought the transformative power of play into thousands of boardrooms and classrooms worldwide through an expanding collection of toys, workshops, and training programs that prepare teams to unlock skills like empathy and failure. Welcome to the show, Alana. Thank you for having me. So what's the one thing that you want um, our audience to take away from today's conversation? I've got a number of questions for you, but what would be the one takeaway uh, that you're excited to share today with our audience? <laughs> um, so it's that's a great question that I don't really get asked that often. Um, I would say, I, I think in the context of this, um, I didn't know I was an entrepreneur until two years into my business, um, especially as a, as a woman and as a designer. Um, I thought entrepreneurship was this thing that I wasn't allowed to do. So I just kept building the business, assuming at some point somebody else would tell me when it was a business. Mm. Um, so my takeaway is that, um, you know, we're living in an incredible time where almost anybody can start a business, but 
sustaining a business is another thing. Um, and don't count yourself out uh, if you think you don't necessarily have the, the proper education or experience to do that. Mm, yeah, I love that about entrepreneurship. There really isn't, I mean, there are entrepreneur courses, but entrepreneurs mm-hmm. come from all walks of life, ages, backgrounds, um, everything under the sun, which which makes for an eclectic community, <laughs> which I love. Um, so walk us through your entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, why did you build 21 Toys? Bring us all the way back from the beginning. Where did this idea start? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm i an industrial designer, so I'm a product designer, and I was a student at Carleton University um, in the mid-2000s, and I actually invented what I we now call the Empathy Toy. It was originally my thesis project in university, mm. and uh, it was uh, actually uh, originally intended or designed for um, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. So it's an abstract 3D puzzle that you play blindfolded. And the the challenge of the game is that one or more players are given a built pattern out of this 3D abstract shape. And they have to describe that shape so that one or more builders can recreate it mm-hmm. all while, while everyone is blindfolded. So in five to 15 minutes, you gain huge insights into how you deal with patience, frustration, but more importantly, how do you creatively communicate? Um, it's quite simple, uh, very abstract. And I would be testing it during the day in schools, uh, specifically in elementary schools, where I would get, uh, I had a girl named Emily who's uh, visually impaired and she would play it with her sighted classmates. But then at night I would test it in my studio with sighted adults. And that's when I started to see that the toy was just as challenging and rewarding for multiple ages and abilities. So um, that kind of sparked the idea that the toy was about um, w- w- sorry, it was not, um, exclusive, it was inclusive. And so the toy at the end of my year, it ended up winning a really prestigious design award. And so my default was, okay, uh, who's going to buy my product? Like who's, who's going to, who am I going to convince to start a business to make this empathy toy? Um, and the good news is absolutely nobody was interested in starting an empathy toy company, <laughs> luckily. Um, so I shelled it. I shelled it for a few years. I uh, worked as a lighting and furniture designer, paid off my student loan. Um, and I just had the toy kind of on a shelf. And it wasn't until I started getting into um, the website TED, so TED Talks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched one in particular about uh, Do Schools Kill Creativity? And it's a uh, one of the most popular TED Talks by a man named Sir Ken Robinson. And I remember just being consumed by this talk and yelling at my screen, like, schools do kill creativity. That was my experience as a really creative student in going through elementary and then high school. But I was also really strong in math and science. And so where I got to the idea of starting a toy company, it was really about looking at education first. Um, so with the idea of schools, we know now in the year 2020 that the number one job skills are emotional intelligence, creativity, all of these skills that we're saying are like the future of work, but we stopped teaching and valuing those skills after kindergarten. Mm. And so the idea that we're not asking grown adults in organizations to be creative, collaborative, disruptive innovators, how do we expect to do that if we stop playing and we stop teaching the really core skills that we need to get there? So all of that kind of sparked this idea of, you know what, I want to start my own toy company. I want to create an entire series of toys that teach skills like empathy. Our most recent one is now failure. The next one's going to be improv. Um, and so I took it from there and I thought, you know, I think I, I want to reimagine what school can look like. And within a few, you know, the first year of starting 21 Toys, 
I not only saw the impact that we can have in schools, but what I discovered through going into schools and doing demonstrations with the teachers was, oh, this is also really great for professional development within organizations. So that's kind of the long and short of how we've ended up. We're in about 52 countries um, and we're in thousands of schools, but also thousands of, of boardrooms and HR and talent and learning departments. Incredible. And where did the 21 come from? <laughs> Excellent question. So everyone says, oh, you're designing 21 toys. And mm -hmm. I said, okay, maybe we're at two right now. Um, but the, the 21 actually comes from the term 21st century skills. Mm -hmm. So this idea that 21st century skills are about creativity and, and collaboration, um, that's kind of the short answer. The longer form answer is uh, a lot of the inspiration that I got when I started 21 Toys was these are really simple abstract shapes. I don't have a word for them. I don't know what to call them. Will these actually create impact? And I, I actually went backwards and I discovered um, this man named Frieder Froebel, who's the inventor of kindergarten. And a lot of people didn't know that someone invented kindergarten, no, but in a 19th century German philosopher invented kindergarten. Huh. And he did that with a series of toys. And it was a series of toys that were abstract, um, complex shapes uh, that explored patterns, um, motion. And um, they were by some considered actually the first educational toys to exist, but they set the groundwork for what would later become kindergarten. So if you went through that, that series of, of, um, of schooling, it was called like Froebel education. Mm -hmm. And if you're familiar with the architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, mm -hmm. um, industrial design pioneer, Buckminster Fuller, um, Maria Montessori, mm -hmm. they were all Froebel educated. Uh, in fact, Frank Lloyd Wright has talked about those gifts and those building blocks in his autobiography is shaping the way that he sees the world. So this idea that all these creative geniuses went through this education system, um, that is what sparked me to say, you know what, Froebel invented 20 gifts, 20 toys. We're inventing the 21st toy. So we're starting where he left off, looking at what are the core skills we should be teaching today so that we can inspire the next generation of, of creative geniuses. Wow. And that genuinely was not even a planted question. I was genuinely very <laughs> curious. What an incredible, yeah, it's sort of how you navigated to that name. Incredible, Alana. So if we look at, you know, your journey as, as a woman entrepreneur and specifically in the social innovation space, um, you know, I think with our work at Startup Canada, we're trying to really encourage both for-profit and non-profit entities to look at social innovation and look um, within these spaces. Can you walk us through what your journey's been like um, as a woman entrepreneur entrepreneur in that space? Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I first started 21 toys, I remember making the decision, this is going to be for profits, uh, and it's going to be social purpose. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know that was possible or what that looked like. Mm -hmm. So I found a really great home at the center for social innovation, mm -hmm. uh, which was actually the reason I, I started my company in Toronto. I'm not, I'm not from Toronto, but, uh, I moved here to start it. And that was the first community I was part of. Um, some things that I did discover was being a for-profit and social purpose is, can be a bit challenging. And I think a lot of people that want to do good and create positive social impact can think of money as a negative thing. Um, but I feel really, really strongly that every business should have a positive social impact. <laughs> um, and so there seemed to be this um, spectrum where on one extreme end, you're a company and you're looking at profit at all costs. And then you'll eventually just donate to a charity or not for profit. And that's, that's the balance. That's like the trade-off. And then on the other end, there's not for profits and, and charities where, um, 
money can sometimes feel like this negative thing or it's a bit complicated. And so I, I'm really happy that we landed on a for-profit social purpose enterprise because, because we're for-profit, it means that I have a lot more, um, flexibility and I can be agile. So we were, I'm inventing products. We're inventing business models. We need to move really quickly. Um, and if we're tied down to grants or funding that could not only delay the innovation process, but sometimes a lot of the times when you apply for a grant, you have to tell them what the outcome will be before you've started. And I find that that can be in such, um, conflict or intention with the creative process, which is that you're, you're running experiments. Mm-hmm. You have a hunch, you have a hypothesis, but it's very rare that you can guess um, or um, you know predict what the end result will be. And you're still you know tackling a certain challenge, but there's so many different solutions that you're you're exploring. So mm-hmm. I think for me, uh, entering into a social venture, um, being a for-profit was something that was very helpful because it's it's such a challenging project and it still is a challenging business model. Um, and then I think the extra layer of being female and running a business because I want to make the world, you know, quote unquote, a better place. Um, something I've learned and I've seen in, in a lot of women or people entering into business for the first time or from a place of they don't have a lot of power. Um, and I definitely, I went into, I started 21 toys with $1,200. Um, I'm, my parents aren't, my mother's not from Canada and my parents' parents are all immigrants. So I, I had to essentially just really bootstrap it. Um, and not, you know, I, I didn't want to bring in investors cause it was just too, there's just too many unknowns. Um, what I found, and this is something that I, I try to talk to a lot of female entrepreneurs when they start is sometimes people show up and they want to help you and they're doing it because they genuinely are believe in what you're doing and are excited about it. And sometimes there's other people that show up that, um, want to help you, but for the wrong reason. So either, um, it's, and it's not always malicious. Sometimes it can be. Um, but I, I found that some of the biggest mistakes I made at the beginning was I was so grateful for people to show up to offer help that I also gave up my power very, very quickly Mm. because, because I wasn't able to, um, you know, afford certain, um, pay or I wasn't able to, you know, how can I say thank you and let somebody else support or help me in the early stages? So often you, and I've seen women do this a lot is that we give up our power and then it took me at least two or three years to go, wait, I started this business. I invented this product. Why do I feel less than? Why do I feel like I'm not allowed to speak on the business end of, of the business? Um, so it's just something to be really mindful of at the beginning, that if someone is there to help you, it's because they genuinely want to help you. And as long as you're honest and transparent about how you can um, how you can compensate them for that help or what risk they're taking, but also what risk you're taking with bringing other people on board. Um, it's really important to do that, but also understanding that this is still yours. You've created it. You've put in years and years, even before starting it, you you're putting your heart and soul into it. Um, so it doesn't mean that just cause someone shows up on day three, that they have the right to take away your, your power. Mm. 
That's that's such a great message, and I love that you're bringing this perspective. And, and and you are an inventor. That it's so interesting that you know we have so many people on our podcast, and I think of them as entrepreneurs. Many of them have you know invented products, but um, especially in that space when you've put um, you know your heart and soul into this type of invention, um, you know it's 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 a sensitive subject, and you want to be bringing in additional expertise and bringing in counsel, but setting those boundaries and trusting your gut through that process at the very beginning um, is. So so mm-hmm. essential to maintaining the integrity of, of the type of product and type of business that you ultimately want to have control over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think when, at least for me as a creative and an inventor and entrepreneur, I built my business with a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to say that entrepreneurship and innovation and creativity share this, which is that you need to live in a world of contradictions. Mm-hmm. So I always yeah. say like in your left hand, you're holding humility, curiosity, being super humble. And then in your right hand, you need to be really, for lack of better words, arrogant Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you need to be confident and you know that like no one will get this idea till it exists. Mm -hmm. And you kind of need to hold both of those at the same time because you need to be open and curious. And I think I leaned a little bit too into being curious and humble. And when your idea or your business is still so new and open and raw, you and your business are vulnerable. Mm. And so what that means is exactly to your point of creating boundaries. It's just important to recognize that people will show up. They will say things that sometimes might be, well, definitely they'll say things that will be negative. Um, people will come in and have a different idea of what you're building. You can be open to that feedback. And sometimes you need to be really hungry for that feedback, but recognizing when it's not appropriate to ask for that feedback or when it's just not coming from the right place, Mm -hmm. that's where you need to have a really strong sense of yourself, um, and build up, up that muscle. Cause I've just seen so many people get trapped in that and you can lose your power, um, in terms of just like who is making decisions in your business. Um, you can also lose, um, the vision of, of your product at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that double whammy effect is totally, um, you know, crippling that, that you are working so hard and investing yourself so completely and to see it, um, you know, go in a different direction can, can be incredibly mm-hmm. upsetting and frustrating. Uh, yeah. that's, that's really great advice, Lana. So when you think of, um, you know, what you wish you learned or what you wish you had known at the beginning of starting this venture, I think that those pieces of advice are, are fantastic. Fantastic. What other piece of advice would you want to share with women entrepreneurs who could be aiming to start a social enterprise, um, looking specifically at a for-profit venture? What other pieces of advice would you offer them? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say community. Community, community is so important. So community for your own professional development and mental health. So definitely get yourself around other entrepreneurs. If you can get a a group of women entrepreneurs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, My joke was, I, uh, before I came to Toronto, I was at, a, at an accelerator in Helsinki called Startup Sauna. Mm. Um, lovely people. Um, all the, uh, <laughs> all of the mentors were from Angry Birds because Angry Birds was just down the street. <laughs> um, so that created a hilarious dynamic. Wow. Uh, but I was also the only woman of all 12, the, 12 of the organization. Mm. I was the only woman. And um, I remember they brought somebody in to do a workshop on networking. And he was like, here's how you network in an event. And by the end of the talk, I was like, okay, everybody else in this room would be getting a meeting. I would be in trouble Mm -hmm. if I used any of these tips Mm -hmm. uh, with just different gender dynamics and all of the different power dynamics that also come to that. So I think just 
surround like getting a community of of other female entrepreneurs uh, is a total game changer uh, i lost i almost lost my business in the first like two it, it like year two slash three um and it was another female entrepreneur who stepped up and called out the situation um and helped me make some tough decisions so that i could retake ownership and 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 start steering the the course again of my business. And there's so many moments in my organization. Uh, that's one of them. Um, another one is actually, uh, in our third year of business, um, the CEO community, mm-hmm. uh, which I think a lot of listeners might be familiar yeah, with. They're an incredible, <laughs> yeah, she has an incredible organization. So I was one of the five ventures in their first cohort. Um, and not only did we get an immense financial support, but I was invited into this other community of female entrepreneurs. Cause I think there's just a different way that the world experiences you for better or worse. Um, even things like, um, if you're negotiating, uh, if you, and this is, I can't remember the study, but, um, typically when men are negotiating and they're negotiating on behalf of themselves, they do much better than women. Whereas when women are negotiating, uh, if they negotiate on behalf of others, they're going to be much more successful than when they negotiate on behalf of themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different um, just advice and support and also just being there. Sometimes things just are difficult and also just to celebrate your wins. Um, the other one in terms of the social innovation space mm-hmm. uh, is also community. But by community, I mean um, go to conferences, go to events, go to as many um, go into as many rooms as possible where your uh, customers are, where your users are. So when I first started 21 Toys, I thought, okay, I want to, I want to, I think that an empathy toy in a school will make a difference. What's my first question? Are schools and teachers in any way interested in this? Mm. So I um, volunteered at conferences I couldn't afford. So like $400 education conference at Mars Discovery District, Mm -hmm. I volunteered. So I got a free ticket and then I got to be in the same room um, and I met with other entrepreneurs. I've also went to unconferences um, with educators. And what I would do is I would bring my prototype, I'd leave it on a table and then I'd leave the room. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and yeah, and then just a swarm of teachers would surround it and say, whose is this? What is this? Empathy toy. This is an empathy toy on it. And I'd show back up and say, oh, I forgot that. And then I'd start a discussion and, and that's how... The long and short of it is we ended up getting into our first school. So a few months into starting 21 Toys and having moved to Toronto, um, the Deaf and Peel Catholic District School Board put in um, an order for a, a, a significant order that paid for my first production run. And it was 100% because of a conference that I'd attended um, and had a, an education consultant introduce us. That is so brilliant. Literally, like my gut, <laughs> I had a visceral reaction to that story. That is so incredible. What a great idea. My goodness. Um, I, and so I, I would love to hear more um, as well on, on sort of scaling this business globally. So um, as many of our listeners will potentially recognize Alana from, um, uh, Alana is the winner of our Mississauga Canadian Export Challenge um, competition that we held in 2019. So as you've looked to scale this business internationally, what does that journey look like? I imagine it's harder to leave an empathy toy in a, in a school in London yeah. while you're sitting in a downtown Toronto. Yeah. Well, I did, as a side note, I did learn to stop packing my empathy toy in my uh, carry-on oh. suitcase when I fly. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just hold it under my arm and it says empathy toy in the pack. Like it's very loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find when I go through airports, sometimes people will run after me 
and ask like, where did you get that? And another piece of advice, do not say I made it. That's just not what you should say. (laughs) So my new, my new advice is if people are like, where did you get that? I was like, Oh, it's this company. And then I can give them the contact info, but people get, go from very excited to concerned when you're like, I made this. You're like, Oh, never mind. (laughs) Uh, That's hysterical. Little little tidbit. Um, but no, I mean, what I would say is I've approached this incredibly organically. There's so much that I still don't know. Um, I think my focus and not just my focus, but my team's focus. So my first hires were, um, our, uh, creative technologists, our, our coder, who's been able to build out all of our online, uh, presence. And then, um, our director of training facilitation, who, um, was a teacher for years and years in the classroom, um, as well as now a facilitator. So they came on board and, the real focus in my first year was on sales, but not really, it was really on product development. So we made those first, you know, 50 sales into schools. We then went to every school and said, how are you using it? So we focused so much on the product and making sure that not only were people able to purchase it and excited about it, but they were using it and they were reusing it. And so for better or worse, um, there still is a lot that I don't know about sales and marketing traditionally. Um, but what I do know is because we were so invested in the product and then therefore the community as our feedback loop, as our testers, as our users, um, educators talk to each other. And so all of our export has happened through word of mouth. And then our biggest campaign and push, our first big campaign and push was when we went into mass production. So a year later, um, after that first big order, we went on Kickstarter. Kickstarter has changed since then it's been a few years since then but our first go on kickstarter that's how we got into 35 countries because we started getting um a lot of press that's how we got into time magazine and fast company and forbes um but it was still through word of mouth and so because we were able to ship those toys to those different various countries we now have a presence in 30, we had a presence in 35 countries. Now we have a presence in over 52. Um, so in terms of our export plans or strategy, I would say what we could have done better was be a bit more strategic, probably focused in on, you know, where do we want to target? But I think we were still so new in exploring not just education, but we were just starting to explore the corporate market where um, for us, we've seen just anecdotally um, a huge amount of interest from um, organizations, not-for-profits, as well as schools in Australia. Um, we have a, a huge amount of interest with our corporate workshops and training in Europe, so in, in the UK, as well as um, in, uh, uh, like, our first distributors were, like, in Denmark. But because we have such a strong presence and we had such an excited community, they made introductions for us. So I think we could have been a bit more strategic and we're still working on our strategy, especially now with the recent updates with COVID. But um, one thing that I do feel very strongly about is like following the energy, Mm. like making yourself available to find out that for us, it was, why are we making so many sales in Australia? Mm -hmm. Like how is it, how are people in Australia even hearing about us? And that gave us some traction and some indicators. So then we could do some more deep diving and and exploring. And, um, I still, I still always have to be reminded of this every year or so, which is while we need to be putting for us as a business, there's a lot more we can be doing for getting new clients and new, new leads. It's our current clients 
and our current users that have so successfully introduced us to our next clients and users. Um, that might be the nature of the product. It's very interactive. It's quite unique. Like there isn't really anything else like it. Um, so that might be a bit unique to us, but we've just had so much success through referrals and introductions and word of mouth, um, that we've been able to both expand and enter new markets, but because we're so close with the community, we've also been able to take their feedback on the actual product and delivery of it, that after we started running workshops, we started getting requests for training. Mm. And so right now our business model is we sell toys, so anyone in the world can purchase them. So that's a like, here you go, you can use a toy. It's a facilitation out of a box. It comes with you know over 52 ways to play. We have pre-made workshops on. Uh, team building, um, you know, uh, creative collaboration. We, we've got a lot of different um, themes for the workshops and the lessons you could use. Um, you could bring us in instead if you don't need to become the expert in the product. You just want the experience. You can hire us. We have a team of 15 facilitators that can run workshops for your teams. Um, and if you're a coach or an educator or you're looking to, you've already used the toy in your work, but you're looking for um, more support on how to really embed it into a program that you're launching, then you can take our training. Um, and all of that came through discussions with our clients who are asking um, for variations and, and updates to what we were offering. Fantastic. So looking at the business now, and obviously the, the entire world changing um, over the last couple of months, how have you been pivoting as a result of COVID-19? Um, how have the, the service offerings been changed? Um, you know, what does your world look like now? Yeah. So, uh, in March, so I would say, uh, we kind of look at like the Friday, the 13th. So March 13th was the last day that our, our team was really, um, in the office in person. We've moved remote since. So we were hit quite hard. Uh, the way that I describe 20 and toys is that we're training and development toy company, uh, using toys to teach what textbooks can't. Um, but the training and development portion of our offerings. So our in-person workshops and in-person training programs, um, essentially we're at a standstill. So we lost a significant amount of pre-booked revenue, but we also lost all of our revenue that was about to close. So we have flights to Peru booked. My team had just returned back from Egypt, the UK. Um, so we had a pretty scary, uh, few weeks in March where we had to have some really big challenging conversations just about the future of the business and, um, all those, you know, intense existential questions that I think so many businesses had to have. Mm. Um, the other end of it is that our customers are schools, which are now a bit on pause or we, we weren't quite sure where they were at. Um, and then HR departments, which are primarily very overwhelmed right now with mm. their own, you know, internal situation with what's going on with COVID. So, um, we very, very quickly pivoted, um, specifically actually because we had one of our clients, um, a really huge tech company that we were about to run our like eighth or ninth workshop with them in the UK and then in California, um, said we were really looking forward to that empathy toy workshop. Um, and we were wondering if you could still do that workshop, but online, not just because of the learnings we were expecting to get from it, but in addition, now that we are now that we're in, in remote work world because of COVID, our teams are really struggling with empathic communication. Um, and how do we kind of navigate this new normal? 
with a lens towards towards uh, communication collaboration. So mm. we very quickly pivoted. So um, by you know within like forty eight hours, we had our first um, it, it, like first version of our empathy toy workshops online. Wow. Uh, it's something that we had actually done a few years prior. It's not the first time we'd done them online, but obviously they hadn't been a, a priority. And so we weren't quite sure if that would work. Uh, so the first thing that our director of training facilitation Ryan did was. He put it together and then the team, our own team, got online and we ran through the workshop. And it was um, pretty phenomenal. Uh, turns out um, describing a puzzle that you have in front of your computer with your camera off to your teammates so they can recreate it um, brings up very direct metaphors to all the challenges that happen when you are trying to communicate with a remote team when you can't see each other's faces. We do a version of the game where you don't need to have a physical toy because not everyone had a physical toy on them. So we would start to send photographs of the shape and the pattern, but they would be sent from different angles and perspectives. So one person on the, on the group call would only have one image with one perspective and someone else would have a different image. And so how do you navigate multiple perspectives? Um, and then we'll do a version of it where we even turn off the audio. Wow. So now you're giving instructions just with a chat window, which gives everyone immediate anxiety. Ooh. This is making me anxious <laughs> just listening about it. I know. <laughs> I get anxious about it. I've played yeah. it like 50 times this way so far. But what's, what, what's really amazing is that so quickly you start to realize the behaviors that you have. If everyone's video is off and their audio is off, and you're writing a question and no one has written you back, do you immediately go to, they're not even on this call. I bet you they went to the washroom or maybe they're going to do something else. And you're like, why don't I trust my team? And like, why did I do that? And then you realize they were silent because they they didn't want to flood the chat box with too much text because then you'll lose it and it gets too complicated. And so there's a lot of direct and immediate behaviors that you can immediately go, that's how I acted in that team meeting. Mm -hmm. Or those are the assumptions that I had about my teammates. And they're not all negative. There's so much positive. We're shocked every time they're able to recreate a pattern yeah. <laughs> with just I, a chat I window. <laughs> it's oh my shocking. It is shocking. Um, and so we started running with our teams. Um, we've now run a number of them with our clients. So we were able to rebook them. Um, um, we're both, you know, we run empathy and failure workshops with banks, with law firms, with um, big tech companies, as well as really small organizations, really anyone that's looking to support the, the learning and development of, of their teams. Mm -hmm. um, but we also then decided, you know, this is a really great activity. What if we open this up to our community that either already has a toy that we haven't spoken to in years that are not just in Canada, but, you know, that are in Hong Kong, that are in... Singapore, um, US, Australia, you know, all over the world. What if we started hosting these community calls? So we've been running community calls for the last few months, which has been such a wonderful way for not only us to offer something, um, the tickets are free, anyone can join, you're welcome to join, anyone listening is welcome to join. Uh, you get online, 90 minutes, don't even have to have a toy, although it's a lot more fun if you do get one. Um, and we found that when COVID hit, conversations around empathy and emotions and feelings was so important. We always said it was important, but it was even more important in that moment. Um, and most recently our community calls, we've, we've been running them every other week and we had, uh, we did a, an additional one this week with our community, um, in other time zones. 
And if you're looking at what's going on in the world right now, one thing that we, we started inviting people into the conversation around empathy was so much of the work that we do around empathy has this assumption that empathy means just be really nice. Mm. That is not what empathy is about. Empathy and the work that we do is we use play as a medium to make people just comfortable enough that they can be very uncomfortable. Mm. And the role of empathy and the work that we do is about inviting people into uncomfortable conversations where they are able to understand the perspectives of other people. They're able to better understand their own unconscious bias or their own um, assumptions and be able to have a space where we can talk about what that looks like in action um, so that we can better understand ourselves and the people that we work and, and live with. So it's been a really, really powerful activity for our community, but it's been a really powerful activity just for my own team. So it's, it's been a really incredible few months and even just the last few weeks have, wow. have been really, really powerful. Yeah, mm-hmm. I imagine. So if, if you could sort of provide one um, tip, you know, to women entrepreneurs uh, and, and those listening right now uh, to stay empathetic, um, you know, to their teams, to their clients um, and, and looking at themselves as well, what, how can women entrepreneurs really maintain that level of empathy? Yeah, I, I think, uh, and this is me saying a sweeping statement, so I'll be really careful with my wording. I think women in general, our default or what is expected of us is that we're caregivers and we're nurturers and we put other people or we're, we're expected to put other people first. And I see this so often in communities of female entrepreneurs is that the idea of being empathic is like, I'm going to take on the burdens of every other person. That is not what you should be doing. In fact, when we talk about empathy and, and being more empathic, it's about better understanding the perspectives and motivations of others. But that doesn't work if you're not empathic towards yourself, if you're not kind to yourself. So what I've been trying to practice a lot, especially right now, is we're in a pandemic. We're in the midst of like like everything is is extraordinarily intense right now. Um, and before there was a pandemic, running a business is already incredibly stressful and difficult. And so much of the work that uh, any entrepreneur needs to work on, but especially uh, female entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs who their default is to take care of other people and make sure that they're okay, um, is to give yourself a bit of a break. So you've started this because you're passionate. You've started this because you believe in it. Sometimes just like sleeping or napping or going for a walk or dropping the ball on something is the best thing you could possibly do. Um, and, and the way that I relate that to the creative process and as an inventor is when I'm inventing a new toy, when I was inventing the failure toy, this idea of wake up at, you know, five in the morning sketch and, you know, um, go to the wood shop, go to the metal shop. Uh, so much of my design process and I felt really weird and guilty about it is taking naps (laughs) is, is, is not forcing it so much. And I think allowing for space to digest, allowing for space to reset, allowing for space to heal is so important for the creative process. And I think so often, especially since I moved to Toronto, there's a bit of this obsession with go, 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 move fast Mm -hmm. and break things. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't think that's serving a lot of people. I think it does an exceptionally amount of, of harm, especially to female entrepreneurs. So when I talk about being empathic, it's really just being better aware and self aware of your own emotions, your state, your motivations, and being able to better understand the motivations and, and emotions of, of others so that you can better support yourself with, with boundaries and better support yourselves with 
creating that space for you to recover and, and reset. It, it'll make you a lot stronger um, in, in the long run. It'll also make your product and your business a lot more strong. Mm-hmm. I will retweet that. That is yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so a lot of, as we wrap up today's conversation, if you think of, you know, one key takeaway, there have been so many incredible pieces of advice that you've offered to our listeners today. Um, maybe in, in a sentence or two, um, you know, what would be the, the one takeaway that you want, um, uh, our listeners today to take and implement in their businesses immediately after today's chat? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I, well, what I would say is it, if you have listeners that are thinking about starting a business, mm-hmm. I, I would say I would really, really, really urge more social entrepreneurs and designers to start businesses. Mm-hmm. So that that is one thing that I feel really, really passionately about. So often inventors and designers think that they just need to find a magical business person to make their idea come to life and to turn it into a business uh, when they have all the they have everything they need. They have all of the skill sets necessary for them to be able to start a business themselves. And in fact, if if design is at the core of your business and how you build a business, it means that you're building a, a human business mm-hmm. because the, the the foundations in the core of design are human are are, are human are, are the sorry the <laughs> the humans involved. Um, but design starts with with empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those that are already on the journey of entrepreneurship, I would just say it's. At the, at the end of the day, it's never going to be easy. It will always be, um, it, it will always be a challenge. As soon as you get comfortable, something new will show up to kind of throw you off. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just making sure that you have a really strong community of, of other entrepreneurs around you um, to help pick you up when you're down um, and celebrate your wins with you. Um, that's how you're going to build that, that resilience. That's how you're going to be able to weather the storm, um, you know, um, as new challenges and opportunities show up. So just, yeah, believing in yourself and making sure that you have a really strong community around you. Incredible, Alana. Thank you so much for all of these insights on the Thrive Podcast today. This was a fantastic conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC, and Scotiabank for helping us to power women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook Resources for Women Entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. Visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Rick Spence and plug into the Startup Canada network. Until next time, I'm Kayla Isabel. It's time to thrive.